Quite a large number of you here this morning are familiar with the Watergate story. Some of you may have heard the name Watergate, and it's just a name to you, but back in the early 70s, the whole drama of Watergate engulfed the Nixon administration, who was Richard Nixon, who was then President of the United States. And it was a massive cover-up. And one of the key people involved in that cover-up was Chuck Colson. You've heard me talk about Chuck Colson. And he tells the story of how there were, there were no more than 12 men who knew about really what Richard Nixon had done. And so these 12 men, Chuck Colson was one of them, and as he said, we were among the most powerful politicians in the world at that time. He said the 12 of us were in agreement that we would lie and protect the president. How long could we do that for? And as he goes on and tells the story, it only took three weeks before one of the men broke and went to the United States Attorney General and agreed, did a plea bargain and agreed that he would give evidence against Richard Nixon that, and would testify that Nixon was lying in order to get a better deal for himself regarding his own crimes in this situation. And Colson makes the point really clearly. It just took three weeks, three weeks, for one of the men to crack. They couldn't maintain the lie for more than three weeks. Some years later, not that, far, not that much later, but a few years later, Colson came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. And one of the things that he wrestled with was the gospel statement that Jesus rose physically from the dead. And he looked at the lives of the disciples because one of the objections that is raised to the resurrection is the disciples lied about it. They just told a lie and they maintained that lie. And Colson looked at his own experience and here were 12 men who couldn't maintain a lie for three weeks and yet when he looked at the lives of the apostles and the disciples who were beaten, in some instances crucified, some martyred for their death, uh, for their faith, some sent into exile, he said they endured all of that and they maintained and stuck to their story for over 50 years. He said it is impossible to think that these people could have maintained a lie for 50 years. He said, who would die for a lie? They steadfastly maintained. He said, if it was a lie, even towards the end, someone would have cracked. Someone would have at some point admitted, even if it was a deathbed confession. And so he looked at that, and that was one of the great arguments for the credibility of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. That these men and women could not have maintained that lie for as long as they did. They were telling the truth. It's interesting because a little stat has emerged regarding what Australians think about the resurrection of Jesus. And six out of ten Australians don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead or they don't know what to think about it. It's a fairly high statistic. If you chuck in another 20-22% who look at the Gospels and say, well, Jesus might have risen from the dead, but there's some problems with it. I'm not sure that the Gospels are telling us the whole story. They're probably embellished it a little bit. That adds up to a significant number of people, around about 8 out of 10, who've either got some serious questions about the resurrection or don't believe it at all or don't know what to think. Now, maybe you're in that category this morning. 
As I said in my prayer a few minutes ago, maybe you've been on the journey to faith for a long time, or maybe you've known Jesus for a long time. But some of you here this morning may have some real questions. Some of you are like the reading we just had. Thomas, you've got some question marks or some questions about Jesus rising from the dead. We read in the Gospel of John chapter 20 that when Jesus appeared to the disciples on the, day that he, on the evening of the day that he rose, Thomas was not there. But very soon after that, the disciples' testimony is, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas is steadfast in his unbelief. In fact, when he is confronted by the disciples, Thomas makes this statement. They explain to him, we've seen the Lord. Thomas says this, unless I see his hands, uh, see in his hands the imprint of the nails, put my finger into the place of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And that statement, I will not believe, is really, really strong and emphatic. It's a steadfastness in his unbelief. I will not believe. And maybe some of you are like that this morning. Maybe you're sitting here and your testimony is, I will not believe. So what I want to do this morning is to give you some evidence as to why the Christian faith, why I believe and why millions of people around the world believe that the Christian faith is the only adequate answer to the question, how can I be sure or how can I know I'm going to heaven? And we're going to do it uh, in a number of steps. But let me just give you the context of John chapter 20. Uh, Ronnie read this scripture to us of Thomas and his doubts, and then he is confronted with the risen Jesus. But let's just have a look at John 20. You don't have to read it. Read it when you go home. But here's what takes place. At the beginning of John chapter 20, it is the Sunday after Jesus has been crucified. Crucified, buried on the Friday. On the Sunday, Mary and the other women go to the tomb in order to finish off the preparations for Jesus' burial. And we read there that Mary comes to the tomb and she is confronted with something she didn't expect. It's an empty tomb. The stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. So she runs to the disciples. She finds Peter and she finds John. They race back to see for themselves. They discover that what uh, Mary has said is indeed true. The tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. This creates questions for them. And then we have that magnificent part of the story where Mary is in the garden. She's standing before the empty tomb. She sees two men in the tomb who ask her, why are you here? What are you looking for? And she turns around and she is confronted by a man in that garden and she thinks he's the gardener. And she says to him, where have they taken my Lord's body? If you've moved it, if you place him somewhere else, tell me and I'll go because I need to finish his burial. She doesn't know that it's Jesus. And then she hears one word that transforms her life forever. Mary. Isn't it great? Don't you love the personal touch of the Gospels? And all of a sudden, her world is transformed. And she races back to the disciples and says, I have seen the Lord. And then, of course, we have that appearance of Jesus that evening where Thomas is not situated. I want you to notice some important words, though, just before we get into the bulk of what we're going to talk about. On 13 occasions, words like see, look, or behold... I don't mean to be rude, but can we get that echo out? Is that echoing out there? It's not? Okay, it must just be me. My apologies. Okay, that's good. 
13 times in the text, the words see, look and behold occur. You have to understand this about these words because they are associated with seeing the empty tomb, seeing the risen Jesus, beholding the risen Jesus or looking and seeing the risen Jesus. You have to understand that each of those words, whilst they are three different words in the original language, each one of them refers to bodily vision. Now, that's important. What the gospel is not saying is that they had a hallucination or a vision of Jesus. What the gospel is saying is, using those words, they actually physically saw the empty tomb and they saw Jesus with their own eyes. You have to understand that. Now, at this point, hopefully it'll be different at the end of the message, but at this point you might not believe that, but that's actually what the text says. It's very important. The words that are used are to refer to physical sight. And so they're not saying that they had a hallucination. They're not saying they had a vision. The gospel writers are very clear about that. The other key word that comes out on four or five occasions is the word believe. As a result of what they saw, or more specifically who they saw... They believe. They put their faith, they put their trust, they commit to Jesus. They entrust themselves to him. They now rely upon him. Very important that we understand what's going on here. So here's what I want to do this morning, because as I said a moment ago, some of you are like Thomas. You've got some real doubts. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to present an argument for you this morning that argues the case not just for the resurrection, but for the Christian faith. Because Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection. If you disprove the resurrection, Christianity collapses like a house of cards and it becomes just like any other faith. But if the resurrection is true, then there are implications, folks. And the implications are this, that it means that everything that Jesus said is true. If he rose from the dead physically and bodily, the conqueror of sin and death, then everything he said and taught and modelled is true. And secondly, most important implications, it has implications for you. Because what are you going to do about that? The resurrected Jesus certainly transformed the lives of the disciples. And for over 50 years, they maintained that Jesus had risen from the dead and he is the only hope of salvation in this world. So what I'm going to ask you to do this morning is think. I'm not going to be able to prove to you 100% every detail of the Christian faith because there still has to be the faith element. But I want to present for you this morning what I hope is a compelling argument that argues for the Christian faith and the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to do it using this. I want you to have a look at this pyramid for a moment, please. This is the apologetics pyramid. This uh, has come from Chad Meister, who is a pastor and theologian in the United States. I love this. So we're just going to go through very briefly six steps on the apologetic pyramid. And you will see, we begin at the bottom and it begins... And it builds, each statement that I make will build on the previous until we build a case for why I believe the Christian faith is the only solution for the world's problems, is the only way of salvation through Jesus Christ and is how we can know that we're going to heaven. So let's begin with the first step on the pyramid. The first step is truth. The claim is made by Mary Magdalene and the disciples that we have seen the Lord. They come to Thomas with this story. We have seen the Lord. The first question you ask, is it true? Thomas certainly asks that question. In fact, he asks from a position of disbelief. 
He hasn't even got to the section yet where he's thinking, is it possibly true? Thomas, where Thomas is at is, I don't believe it. Unless I have the physical proof, I will not believe it. You're not going to take me in. Now, this question of truth is not a new problem. We have a lot of discussion in our world today about truth. We hear a lot about things that are said, for example, that's fake news, it was made up, you can't believe this, you can't trust that. We hear people say that truth cannot be known or truth is relative. These are not new statements. They might just be a little bit more well heard because of social media, but they're not new questions. Pontius Pilate, on the day that Jesus was crucified, said to Jesus, what is truth? What lies behind that question? Pilate was asking, how can you know truth? What is truth? Who can know truth? People ask that question all the time these days. The other question, and I kind of think Thomas is pushing into this a little bit, when he says, I want to see the nail prints and I want to see the wound in his side, Thomas is kind of pushing into this, although he says, I will not believe it. He's kind of pushing into that other aspect of truth that says, well, truth is relative. You know, guys, we've been together for three years. I think it's fantastic that this is the way that you can deal with the the grief of losing Jesus. And if that works for you, that's fine. If that's the truth you choose to believe, well, that's great. But, you know, I actually need a little bit more evidence than that. Does that sound familiar? People are saying it all the time. Truth is relative. You can't know truth or... It's relative. If that works for you, that's great. If that's, that, that's your truth, wow, that's fantastic. But it's not my truth. Oh, I've got another truth. Now, look, I'm going to be blunt. It's just bunkum. This, this sort of arguments are rubbish. You can know truth, and I'll tell you this much, truth is not relative. Truth is not relative. So this statement that there's no such thing as absolute truth that truth is relative, especially when it comes to religion, pardon the irony, but it's not true. That statement is not true. Here's the first thing. You can know that some things are true. For example, imagine I'm holding a bowling ball in my hand and I'm standing on the 30th storey of a building, hanging out the window. And I say to you, I'm going to take this bowling ball and I'm going to drop it out the window and it will float as light as a feather. Why did you just laugh when I made that statement? Because you know it's not true. Why do you know it's not true? Because it doesn't line up with the facts. What are the facts? You drop objects out of buildings, especially heavy ones, and they fall because of the law or the truth of gravity. We can know truth. And one of the ways that we know truth is you ask the question, does it line up with the facts? If it lines up with the facts, it's true. So that brings us to the second statement. Truth is relative. It might be true for you, but it isn't true for me. So I'm going to say to that, okay, I believe that if I throw myself out of this 30th story building... I'm going to hit the concrete at several thousand kilometres an hour. And you're standing there and saying, well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. It's relative. Well, you throw yourself out the building and see how that's working for you. 
You see what I'm saying? And people say, oh, but it's different to religion. It's different to religion. Because when it comes to religion, and when it comes to matters of faith, we're all on the same path. And it's really interesting when you get into discussion with people about that. I had a conversation recently with someone, a really good person and a great conversation. So don't hear any criticism in this statement that I'm making. But we got chatting. And the comment that uh, this person made to me was, well, you know, it doesn't matter about what religion, you know, because at the end of the day, we're all heading in the same direction. No, we're not. Now, you have to be careful. I mean, it's the first time you meet the person, so I'm just having this brief conversation. So this is the, the way I took it. I said, you know, I said, you're actually right. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what religion. I said, what matters to me is that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He, is the, he said he is the only way to God, and so what it matters to me is that it's what Jesus said. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm trying to push truth in here. Because if you want to say that faith and religion and all those kinds of things are just relative and saying, well, Buddhism's true for you, but it's not true for me. I'm going to follow Sikhism or I'm going to follow Hinduism because that's my truth. That's rubbish. Why is it rubbish? Because they're not all saying the same thing. Christianity says that Jesus Christ alone saves you from your sin. The other religions of the world disagree with that. So we're not all on the same path. So let's forget this idea that... We, uh, that truth and religion is relative. It doesn't work. So it brings us to the next step in the pyramid, worldviews. So if we can establish, if we can agree for a moment that truth can be known, if we can establish that, if we can agree with that just for this moment, how we begin to unpack truth will depend on our worldview. Now, what is a worldview? Well, a worldview is simply a system of beliefs that you hold to or ideas and it's the way in which you interpret the world around you. Now, what I'm going to do is talk just briefly for a moment about the three basic worldviews that people have, all right? There's all subsets and that kind of stuff, but there's three basic views. The first worldview that a lot of people have is atheism. Now, the worldview of atheism declares that there is no God and strident atheists are really strong about that. There is no God. Uh, there is no basis for right or wrong. We are simply the products of evolutionary chance, and you better just accept that. Now, going back to this concept of a worldview, there are five questions. I don't want to confuse you, right? But there are five questions every human being asks Is there a God? What is ultimate reality? How can we gain knowledge? Or how, do we understand, or how uh, is knowledge revealed to us? What is the basis for right and wrong? And who am I? Every human being asks those questions at some point in their life. So let's take atheism. I just want to take one question. The most powerful argument for me is the question of what is the basis for right and wrong? What is the basis for morality? Why is it that we say, where, where does it come from, this sense in us that says this is right and this is wrong? Well, you take the worldview of atheism and apply it to that question. What does the atheist say? The atheist says, well, as Richard Dawkins said, uh, the fact that we do right or wrong is it's just a blessed misfiring. You see, in an evolutionary worldview where there is no God, there is no basis for right or wrong. We do good things or we do bad things because it's just happens. Now, a really sincere, truthful atheist will tell you that isn't true. A true, sincere atheist will admit that the worldview of atheism has no basis for right and wrong. They cannot explain to you why human beings in an evolutionary framework where it's survival of the fittest, where it's about dog-eat-dog dog 
and only the strong survive. You have no basis for right or wrong. And an atheist that is genuine and honest will admit that. So there's a second worldview, pantheism. Pantheism is the belief that we are God and that the goal of life is to be absorbed back into God and we lose our personality. What does the pantheist say? Sorry, we're not on to theism yet, sorry. We're still on worldviews. Thank you. The pantheist will say, on the question of what is the basis of right or wrong, the pantheist will say, right and wrong is an illusion. It's just an imaginary thing. The goal is for you to realise that, realise that you are God, and be absorbed back into God. Now, is that a serious... Think about that as a worldview. Tell the people of the Ukraine who are suffering right now, or people who are in Africa who are starving, tell them right now that right and wrong, evil and suffering is an illusion. Pantheism does not offer any adequate answer to the question of right or wrong, or why we do right and why we do wrong. Now... Don't put theism up just yet. I'm going to mention it, but then we'll go to it in just a moment. Thank you. That brings us to the third basic worldview, theism. And theism is essentially this. Theism says that there is a God who created us, created the world, created the universe, and he has given us the basis for right and wrong. He has revealed that to us. So theism relies on the fact that there is a God in the universe. He made us, and he has told us what is right and wrong. So that brings us now to the third step. Thank you. Theism. If we agree that pantheism and atheism do not provide an adequate answer to the big questions of life, if you agree with me, and I hope you do, you will see that theism offers the only satisfactory answer to the question or the big questions of life, particularly on that question of why is, why, what is the basis of right and wrong. So let's come to theism. Is there any evidence out there? Is there any truth to the claim that there is a God who made the universe, who made us, and has told us what is right and wrong? Is there any evidence at all? So glad you asked that question. Here's what Paul says in Romans 1 verse 20. Romans 1 verse 20, just talking about the creator and the creation. This is what Paul said. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Do you see what Paul is saying? God is clearly seen and so are his attributes and power through what he has made in the created world. They've been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. The world and the universe around us gives us plenty of evidence for a God who created the world. There is evidence out there. Let me put it to you another way. A little while back, Karen and I went to an art exhibition and there was this beautiful painting of an indigenous lady, magnificent painting. And we looked at it and you just looked in this, into the face of this lady and you could see who she was, was captured in that painting. Not for a minute... As Karen and I looked at that painting, which we thought was beautiful, it was just a stunning painting, when we looked at that painting, not for one minute did Karen and I think, 
Man, it's amazing how paint can just throw itself together on a canvas like that. Not once did that cross our mind. But the conversation went like this. Hasn't the artist captured that person? Hasn't the artist done an incredible job? I ask you this question. Why don't we think like that when we look at each other? Hasn't the creator done a marvellous job in making you and me? Or in that sunset or in that tree or whatever it might be that captures your attention? When you sit down to a beautiful, sumptuous meal and you look at it, you don't think, gee, it's amazing how the steak just managed to arrange itself on the plate and the peas are in the perfect... I mean, I guess it depends on where you eat, doesn't it? But... um, When you eat a beautiful meal, you don't for a minute think that that steak grew a pair of legs and hopped itself off into the fry pan and then cooked itself up and then threw itself onto the plate. You don't think that for a minute. But you praise the chef or the cook. Paul said there's ample evidence. Why, why, Why are we so quick to acknowledge the creator in simple things like that but not in this universe or in the people that he's made. There's some more evidence. The fact that evil exists in the world does not mean that God is not real. This comes down to the question, if God is all-powerful, if God is all-knowing, then how come there is evil in the world? Folks, this brings us to the problem of sin. We are so quick as human beings to blame someone. We've been doing it since the Garden of Eden. When Adam is confronted by God and God says, what have you done? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to, touch, told you not to eat from? And Adam's response is, the woman that you gave me. We've been blaming God since the Garden of Eden for evil. But evil is the natural consequence. Suffering and death are the natural consequences of a world that has rebelled against its creator. And so the responsibility lies with us. So the fact that evil and suffering, and I know it's a complicated question, I don't want to be trite about it, but it's a little bit more I need to say this morning. But just to say this, the fact that evil exists in the world is not because that's how God intended it. When the the creation week is completed, God says what? It is very good. But mankind rebels against God and sin and suffering come into the world. People say, well, why didn't God just make us to do the right thing? That isn't love. If you're familiar with the Harry Potter stories, you might be, remember uh, this little thing that floats around called the love potion, that if someone wants someone to love them, they sprinkle the love potion on them. And they sit there going, oh, just all this, I'm in love with this person. But it's fake. If God forced us to love him, we're just a robot's. He placed us in the garden for a reason, and that reason was that we might choose him and his love willingly. It's called free will. It's a beautiful gift. But we abused it. But thanks be to God through his risen son, Jesus, that he can redeem our free will when we choose him. Brings us to the next step. Okay, well... Has anything been revealed to us? Is there any revelation for theism? You see, why this is included here is because when we come to this subject of 
theism, you've got to understand that Islam is a theistic religion. It believes that God created the earth and told us what is right and wrong. Uh, Judaism is a theistic religion. Christianity is a theistic revolution, uh, religion. So which one is right? Which book do we believe? Glad you asked that question as well. Because we would agree with the Jews that the Old Testament is inspired by God, but we have the New Testament as well. So I want to argue from the New Testament. Let me just give you some simple truths. How can we, rely, how, can we really take the Bible seriously? Well, think about this. When it comes to the New Testament, there are over 5,800 manuscripts or copies or pieces of copies of the text of the New Testament that puts it within 100 years or so of the original writings. There is thousands more pieces of evidence for the ancient documents of the New Testament. When you compare it to... Any other ancient document and evidence that we've got, the New Testament just far outstrips it. It's incredible how far it is uh, stripped away. Chad Meister said this, with all of that evidence, he said, this doesn't prove that the New Testament is true, but it does offer good reason to believe we have a reasonably accurate representation of what was originally written. But let's think about eyewitness testimony when it comes to Revelation. We talked about the eyewitness testimony of Mary Magdalene, of the disciples. Listen from the scriptures. Mary Magdalene, the disciples, in John 20, come and say to Jesus, uh, come and say to the others, we have seen the Lord. Peter, writing in his second letter, says this, talking about the transfiguration. We ourselves, notice the words, we ourselves heard this voice from heaven. The apostle John, writing in his first letter, says this, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes. Luke, when he writes his gospel, says, there were eyewitnesses to all of these things and I've carefully researched it all out. What does the Apostle Paul say? Jesus appeared to Peter, then the 12, then to 500 people, then to James, then to all the apostles, and finally he appeared to me. Now, I don't know about you, but when I pick up the New Testament and I read it, and this has been increasingly so over the last couple of years, as I read it and I read the eyewitness testimony over and over again, they say in the New Testament, we saw this, we heard this, and I look at it and I'm saying, why would they lie? I mean, why would they put a book together and just fill it with lies? Why would they do that? When they're writing in a culture that hates Christians and hates Christianity, why would you try to maintain a lie like that for so long? You have to ask yourself that question. And there is the evidence of archaeology. We were blessed to go to Israel almost three years ago. Israel is just a living archaeological dig. (laughs) There's stuff everywhere. One of the most compelling pieces of evidence. And it's just one out of thousands. There was a lot of debate about Pontius Pilate, whether he really existed or not. And blow me down up at Caesarea, they dug up this stone, and guess whose name was on it? Pontius Pilate, and the archaeologists dated it, and guess what? It was in the same time range when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Just one amongst thousands of compelling pieces of evidence to support the revelation and testimony of the Bible. Can you trust the Bible? I stand here before you today and say you absolutely can trust the Bible. I'm convinced of it. And so what it tells us about Jesus and what it tells us about God when it relates to theism, that's why I logically conclude that Christianity is the truth of God about how to get back to God into relationship with him. It's not Islam, it's not Judaism, it's not any other religion. It's what's been declared for us in the Gospels. Which brings us to the fifth step, resurrection. 
What gives credibility to these claims? It's the resurrection of Jesus. This is the outstanding thing. The resurrection. We have here Thomas saying, I will not believe. Then all of a sudden he's confronted with the risen Jesus standing right before him. What are some of the best arguments for the resurrection? There are two for me. The first is the changed lives of the disciples. I've already mentioned that every one of them, every one of them died a martyr's death except for John who died in exile in his 90s and he died because of his steadfast commitment to the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead. These guys are cowards on Good Friday. These guys are hiding away in the upper room in fear of their lives because now that their master is gone, they, they, they're fairly certain that the Romans are going to come after them and they are fearing their lives and yet, 40 days later, they stand up in front of the whole of Jerusalem with thousands of people there and they declare what? Jesus rose from the dead. It's a powerful message. Peter stands up and he goes... Um, just got to tell you that Jesus, by very many proofs that we've seen and you saw, is God and you killed him. If you're a God-fearing Jew, you think about that. Oh, and by the way, he rose again on the third day. We killed God and now he's come back to life. I don't think he's going to be very happy. That, you can imagine what the Jews are thinking. But these guys, they go from cowards to heroes who stand up the courage. Why? Because they saw the risen Jesus. He rose from the dead. Physically, it transformed their lives. The other great argument for the resurrection is the Apostle Paul. How does someone go from murdering and persecuting Christians to becoming the greatest missionary the world has ever seen? You can't explain that except for the resurrection. You don't go around murdering Christians and breathing threats and then all of a sudden you start promoting the faith unless something radical happens in your life. And what was it? It was the resurrection of Jesus. Which means we must consider the final step. It's called the gospel. Let me tell you what the gospel is. Best definition, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is what Jesus says. This is what the gospel is. Christ died for our sins. Mankind rebelled against God. As a result of that, death, sin and suffering came into the world. But Jesus died for our sin. Why? Because we could not pay the price. We could not fulfill that penalty. Only Jesus could. Christ died for our sins. We can't, but he can and then Paul goes on and says he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He rose physically and bodily from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered death. Forgiveness is available. Heaven is open. You have eternal life now. You have a future in heaven if you repent and put your faith and trust in Jesus now. That, friends, is the gospel. And all you need to do is repent, turn from your sin, Confess that Jesus is Lord, confess your sin, repent, seek his forgiveness and put your trust. Like Thomas, you fall at his feet and you say, my Lord and my God, I trust you, only you can save me. That's what it is to be a Christian. Repentance, confession and trust. That's my case for the Christian faith. Some of you might be ready to make a commitment to Christ right now. 
And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, just like we did on Good Friday. If you have not come to the place where you have put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, if you're watching at home and you don't know Jesus, this is your moment to do business with him. We're going to put a prayer up, if we could have that prayer up, please. I'm going to ask those of you who know Jesus to be praying for people who are here now, who are watching online, who don't know Jesus. Pray that they will have the courage to take the step to turn their life over to Jesus right now. So would you just all bow your heads with me? Those of you who want to commit your life to Jesus, whether you're watching at home or whether you're, you're here, you can look up at the screen. And we're going to pray this prayer together. Pray with me. If you're ready to commit your life to Jesus, let's do this now. Heavenly Father, I know I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness. From this moment on, I turn away from all my sin and I ask you to forgive me. I understand my good works cannot bring about this forgiveness. It is only by what Jesus has done in dying and rising for my sin. I put my trust and faith in him. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, to take control of my life as my Lord and Saviour. In your name I pray. Amen. Lord, we pray for those who have made that commitment this morning. That you will bless them and encourage them and lead them on in their walk with you. And give, it, give them the courage to tell someone about the decision they've made today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning and you'd like to know more about being a Christian, please come and talk with me or contact our church office. We would love to know if you stepped into God's kingdom this morning. God bless you. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.